0: this morning, I want to continue to place our eyes on Christ, specifically highlighting the role of Christ over the church. As we re-enter the text that we began nearly two weeks ago now, I not only want to call your attention to Christ, but I want to plead with you and I, plead with all of us, that we would submit our heart to Christ. I would ask that each one of us would not look upon others in judgment based on the text we read, but we would look upon our own hearts in judgment based on the text we read. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and I want to bring to you a continuation of the message that I have titled The Preeminent Christ, Christ over the Church. I ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. In the late 1800s, a movement was afoot in England to unofficially unite the churches and bring them closer together. By and large, this was received with great enthusiasm, and Sylvester Horne, writing of this trend, says, Everywhere, the response was indicative of the resolve to make the Christianity of the 20th century simpler and pure, aggressive, unsacerdotal, and free. The movement was met with little discernment. Only a few were really concerned about the implications that it would have. They failed to consider the cost of unification in this case. Some who vocally opposed such a move were privately ostracized and publicly criticized. Yet the opposition would not, indeed they could not, remain silent. They could not relent because at stake was the purity of the gospel and the status of the church. By 1874, prominent men who supported this move and supported this movement had denounced things like the internal punishment of sinners. One man would even go as far as declaring that the Bible was errant, that it contained errors. And then with a twist of words, he would argue that this was a good thing because it meant people could be drawn closer to Christ. Despite the proclamation of Horn that I just read, the cost of this unity was an impure, watered-down, Incomplete gospel. It took away the need for a savior and thus took people further away from that savior. There's a secondary consequence of this mindset. If you take away the need for a savior, you take away the need for the church. Without our savior, we not only have no knowledge of God, we have no desire for knowledge of God. And thus we make the church obsolete. There becomes no need to be part of the church because there is no need to seek God and no need to draw closer to him. Too often we treat the church as though it is ordained by humans and governed by humans for the pleasure of humans. In this way we treat the church like a market, asking, what do I want today? People show up at the church with their shopping list of expectations, and if those expectations aren't met, they move on to the next church. Others come to church, and although their shopping list is not met, they stay instead thinking, well, I'll make this church what I want it to be. But we forget that the church is a divinely orchestrated institution. It is ordained by God. It is managed by God. It is directed by God for the pleasures of God. And yet that doesn't mean that the church is without human benefit. Consequently, the church and the, is the means by which God works in the lives of Christians, in the lives of followers of Jesus Christ. The church is full of godly truth, imparting the Lord's wisdom to those who need it. The church is full of godly people, imparting the Lord's accountability to those who need it. And the church is full of godly sorrow, imparting the the Lord's compassion and Lord's comfort to those who need it. And at the head of this church is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who leads and guides the church is our Savior. Therefore, if we think little of Christ we will think little of the church. Conversely, if we think much of Christ, we will think much of the church. I want you to note first the preeminence of Christ in verse 18. Expanding on what we talked about last week, through the Apostle Paul and and the Word of God, we read, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If Jesus Christ is not raised by exaltation, he is reduced by exclusion. If Christ is not first, then he is last. Jesus is superior. He is inferior to nothing. And so he stands towering over creation in verses 15 through 17 of our text. And then he stands towering over the church in verses 18 through 20. Paul gives Jesus three titles, the head, the beginning, and the firstborn of the dead. We are told that these positions are bestowed upon Christ so that he may be preeminent in everything. To be preeminent is to hold the highest rank, to be the first in importance. The place of Christ is preeminent, first in everything, in all things. This text, whether we realize it or not, is the primary cause for people to reject Christ. Few are willing to relinquish their self-given title of first. They are unwilling to give up their position as sovereign over their own lives. Even as professing Christians, our response to this point is, is indicative of the state of our lives. If Christ is not preeminent, then we are. It is indicative that we have made ourselves the predominant influencer in our lives, so that we are not subjected to the work of Christ or the work of God, but to the will of man. And we will live our lives based on his not based on his direction, but on our desires. If Christ is not preeminent, the mold of our lives is self, not Christ. If Christ is not preeminent, the measure we make of others' lives is by comparing them against ourselves, not against Christ. And if Christ is not preeminent, the motivation for our participation in the church is not what Christ wants the church to be, but what I want the church to be. But Christ alone is superior, preeminent not in one thing, but in everything. The rightful position of Christ is first over creation, first over life, and thus first over the church. He alone is head of the church. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. These verses remind us of the writing to the Corinthians when Paul likens the church to a body full of different members and full of many members, each person fulfilling his or her role. But what is the purpose? Of the body? What is the purpose of each member? In our scripture reading this morning from Ephesians 4, and what I just read to you, it is to equip the saints for ministry, to build up the body of Christ, to attain unity in faith, and to mature. Notice that the purpose is never for self, it is always oriented towards others, not focused on building up who I am but rather working in order to build up the entire body, to build up the community of Christ. Certainly, we come to be built up ourselves, but if that is the only reason, the sole reason, for coming to church, then we're doing it wrongly. Then we read in verses 15 and 16 of the same text. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, Into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. At the head of the body is Christ. And notice the text that the body is to grow to Christ in verse 15 as the head of the church, as an object of our faith. He is the purpose of our faith, that we grow to him. We are ever increasing, continuously growing, not so that we may be bigger or that we may be better, but so that we are growing more into him, more connected to Christ. But notice also that the body is growing not just growing to him, but the cause of that growth is from him. The CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, expresses it more clearly, saying it this way in verse 16. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes growth of the body. From him, the whole body grows. Verse 15 suggests that the body is growing to him, while verse 16 explains that the body grows because of him. As the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ offers wise counsel. He provides sovereign guidance and supreme joy. As a head over us, then, he is our source of direction. He is our source of comfort, and he is our source of delight. The relationship between Christ and the church is well-pictured as a marriage, a marriage with Christ as the groom and the church as the bride. We see this repeatedly in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 11, too, Paul laments the unfaithfulness of the church, specifically the Corinthian church, who had committed spiritual adultery by enter- entertaining the advances of other idols and other ideologies. Ephesians five twenty five pictures the love of Christ And his love for the church compared to that of the love of a husband for his bride. A few verses prior to that text in Ephesians 5, he compares the leadership of a husband over his wife to the headship of Christ over the church. In the same way, the church is to submit to to Christ's decrees with a combination of love for him and a trust in him trusting his ability to lead, and trusting his willingness to lead in a manner that reflects his loving love and care for the church. And then we come to psalm, a psalm, Psalm 45, that is more unique than almost any other psalm, and it takes on this perspective not taken anywhere else. Not only does Psalm 45 affirm the virtues of marriage, but it praises the king, Who is the groom? In an overflow of emotion, the psalmist writes My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my ready scribe. (coughs) Sorry, I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh. O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach your awesome deeds. And then the psalm goes on. If such words are not the expression of our own heart towards the king of kings, the bridegroom of the church, then we must ask, have we even made him head of the church? Because Christ is the head of the church, our hearts will never be satisfied and our joy will never be complete until we are content to make Christ preeminent. I want you to note second, the presentation of Christ. In verse 19, the text reads simply, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The name Emmanuel of Matthew one twenty three is fitting for no other human than Jesus Christ. While being in the form of man, only Christ was fully God. Only Christ holds all authority delegated by God. And only Christ was so, comp- so able to completely express all the attributes and all the activities of God. Indeed, he was Emmanuel, God with us, because in him the fullness of God dwells. Jesus Christ holds a position of preeminence because he is the presentation of God. By the worth of Christ, God's character is revealed. By the word of Christ, God's purposes are revealed. And by the work of Christ, God's redemption is revealed. All that is Christ is all that is God. In the next chapter of Colossians, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 9, Again, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In the words of Douglas Moo, in a typical New Testament emphasis, Christ replaces the temple as a place where God now dwells. This is now where all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found. All the fullness of God's authority, all the fullness of God's attributes, and all the fullness of God's activities dwell within Christ. To know God, one must know Christ. This mindset and this teaching is directly opposed to the Gnostic influences that Paul is writing against in this letter. It's opposed to those Gnostic leaders who were seeking to lead the Colossian church astray. They denied the deity of Christ and they sought greater knowledge of God elsewhere. But while they did that, the inspired word here written by Paul proclaims that a knowledge of God comes from a knowledge of God of Christ. While we are sons of God by adoption, Christ is God's Son by nature. And we need to only look at Christ if we want to look upon God. After all, as it says in John 3.34, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. What is the logical conclusion of all of this? If in Christ all the fullness of God dwells and Christ is the head of the church, What does that mean for the church? It means the church should be a reflection of God's fullness as well. Not that the church is God, but that the church reflects God in worth, in word, in work, and in worship. In worth, the church values God by valuing people. We point to the preeminence of Christ by pointing people to the redemption of Christ. We model his activities and his attributes, this is not so that people will see the worth of the church, but so that they will see the worth of God. In word, the church reflects the fullness of God by proclaiming the fullness of God's truth. We do not endeavor to preach our own opinions, our own preferences, and our own desires, but instead we preach the full counsel of God's word. In work, the church reflects the fullness of God by doing the full work of God. We exert ourselves in evangelism and discipleship to see others become fully dependent and fully mature in him, as we'll read about in Colossians one twenty-eight and 29. And finally, in worship, the church fully reflects God by fully worshiping God. Worship is a result of who God is, not who we are. And therefore, worship must be all consumed by God's glory and all directed by God's goodness. With Christ, who is the fullness of God at the head of the church, the church must be a reflection of who God is. As Christ is a presentation of God's fullness to the church, the church must be a presentation of God's fullness to the world. In the words of Richard Sibbs, when we begin to think of anything in ourselves, let us go to our head, to Christ, in whom we have all we have and all we hope to have, of his fullness we receive, not only grace for grace, but glory for glory. Finally, I want you to note the provision of Christ in verse 20. As it continues from verse 19, it reads, And through Christ to reconcile to God all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The preeminence of Christ is partially determined by the provision of Christ. Christ is worthy of his position of preeminence because he is God. Within him, all the fullness of deity dwells. And now, in this text, Christ deserves that same position, a place of preeminence, because of the role he had in the reconciliation of all things. As the one who redeemed the church, he is preeminent over the church. In the horrendous death of Christ, the horrendous sin of man was nullified, and the horrendous judgment of God was abated. In a book called Startling Questions, J.C. Ryle writes poignantly this bit of a longer text. He says, I cannot think little of sin when I look at the cross of Christ. Do I want to know the fullness and completeness of the salvation of God and the fullness and completeness that he has provided for sinners? Where will I see it most vividly? Shall I go to the general declarations of God's mercy in the Bible? Shall i rest in the general truth Excuse me shall i rest in the general truth that god is a god of love No i must look at the cross of christ i find no other evidence that equals that i find no balm for my conscience my troubled heart like the sight of jesus dying that cruel death for me on that wretched tree there, I see the full payment that has been made for my enormous death. The curse of the law that I have broken has come down on the most holy one who suffered there in my place. The demands of that law are satisfied. Payment has been made for me to the othermost farthing. It will not be required again. I might sometimes imagine I've gone too far to be forgiven. My own heart sometimes whispers that I am too wicked to be saved. But in my better moments, I know this is all my foolish unbelief. I read an answer to my doubts in the blood shed on Calvary. I feel certain when I look at the cross that there is a way to heaven for the very vilest of men. Notice what it is that is accomplished by the cross. Our text says reconciliation and peace. It is important to note that Paul is not writing that all things or all people will be saved. This is not a text of universalism. Instead, it's simply an indication that God has placed all things under Christ's authority. And the work of Christ is restoration. 1 Corinthians 15:27 For God hath put all things in subjection under his feet so that the work of Christ is one of restoration laboring to bring creation to the point it was as it was when it was created by God completely in subjection completely in sync with his will and completely good the second work of Christ is to bring about peace it says in our text Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If through Christ we have peace, that suggests that apart from Christ, there exists enmity between God and man. Without Christ, humans can only exist in a state of animosity and hostility towards God. Is it any wonder then that the world works so steadily and so fervently against God? Without Christ, they lack peace with God, and so they live with enmity with Him. They act only as enemies, acting as nothing more than agents of evil, seeking to undo the purposes of God. But through Christ, see what happens in Ephesians 2 4 through 16. And how is it that Christ accomplishes this? By the blood of his cross. It took nothing less than the full sacrifice of Christ to bring about this reconciliation. It took nothing less than the death of the very one who embodies the fullness of God to bring about peace with God. As a wondrous hymn says, clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. But by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be for Christ alone. God estranged from God. To that, John Stott writes, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? In imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn picks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is a God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. Let us stand back and marvel at the work of Christ and the love of God. Were it not for this, we would exist alienated and hostile what Paul says in the verses following our text in Colossians. And then in verse 22, he says, Instead, his death presents us holy, blameless, and faultless before God. How can one who has never been comforted be expected to comfort others? In the same way, how can the one who has never experienced the depth of God's rescue be able to explain it to others. By this, Christ deserves his position of preeminence, his place over the church, not merely because he redeemed us, but because he redeemed us when we could not. Christ is the head of the church, not because he did something for us, but because he did something for us that we couldn't even do for ourselves. The other day, a friend of mine sent me an advertisement to a church out of California. This church had all the bells and whistles of modernism, low lights, loud music, lack of the word. And soon, this church would be offering something new, a virtual reality church. Not virtual church as we know it, with people attending services online, Even that, I would argue, doesn't in itself constitute the gathering of the body. No, this was a virtual reality church. Like any virtual reality game that you hear of and hear talked about, this indeed was for the church. So a person could pretend as though they were at church and maybe even somewhat feel like they were at church, but without ever actually needing to attend church we've reduced the church to nothing more than a video game. How disappointing this must be for God. At the flood, people mocked his word. At the cross, people mocked his son. And now at the pulpit, people mock his church. The church becomes irrelevant, impractical, and impersonal because it becomes about me. To quote Wayne Mack, I believe that one major reason That the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States is very close to being in sheer chaos today is because so many people think themselves as individuals rather than as part of the body of Christ. Christianity is not every man for himself. It's every man together for Christ. The Church is the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is preeminent over the Church, he is the leader, he is the director, with complete authority and complete integrity. He stands over the church as a head, giving a direction according to its needs and according to his sovereign will. Jesus Christ is a presentation of God to the church. He is the fullness of God presented to the church that they may enjoy him fully. And Jesus Christ is the provision for the church. He alone redeemed the church, becoming the all sufficient sacrifice to reconcile all things and make peace with God. When we think little of Christ, we think little of church, because only Christ is the head of the church. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that we have the church, not the building, but the body, the body of Christ, Lord. Father, who who could ever design such a wondrous institution? Who could orchestrate this but you and your complete wisdom and complete goodness, Lord? Father, it is indeed a great privilege to be part of the body of Christ, to be part of the church, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that, first and foremost, you would give, a, give us a passion for Christ. Give us a passion to seek and know him, not as we want to know him, but as we need to know him. And in doing this, Lord, give us a passion for the church. May we serve you by serving one another. May we love you by loving one another, Lord. And most importantly, Lord, may we place Christ at the head of the church, removing our own inhibitions, our own wants, our own desires, and instead seeking your will that you may be glorified by the church. May we present your word and work to the world who needs it, Lord. So, Father, we are so grateful that this day, committing all things to you, In your holy and precious name we pray, amen.